I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking in this study in 1 Corinthians, your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world. And in chapter 1, we saw how there were divisions in the church. People were taking up party factions and how Paul said that he had come to proclaim the good news about Jesus, not in words of eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. Then last week we saw how Jesus Christ is in fact the wisdom and the power of God. This morning in chapter 2, we're going to look at what it means to proclaim Christ Proclaim Christ crucified in wisdom from the Holy Spirit. You know, there's lots of ways in which people think about the proclamation of the gospel. I have said it before that the message is more important than the methods. And that's generally true. However, what we'll discover in chapter 2 is that there are some methods that even if the message is right, the methods in themselves are incorrect. So we're going to be looking at these, what is the right method and what are some of the wrong methods. Many years ago, there was a little gospel novel written by a very clever guy by the name of Joseph Bailey entitled The Gospel Blimp. Anybody ever read The Gospel Blimp? Okay, Oh, a couple over here. All right, a couple over here. I was going to say I could tell it any way I wanted to then if nobody had read it. Um, but basically the storyline was this. Some Christians that were neighbors uh, were getting together and thinking about how they could share the gospel with their neighborhood. And of course, they weren't all that excited about actually going to their neighbors and telling them the good news about Jesus. There had to be a more modern, more powerful, more effective method than that. And the method they dreamt up was a blimp. And they would have this blimp that would fly over their neighborhood and they would have gospel tracks that they would dump down onto the, fluttering all over the neighborhood, covering the neighborhood with the gospel. And of course, in the novel, all sorts of horrible things happen. You know, they get in trouble with littering, and there, there is, uh, I th now I'm not sure I remember this rightly, but there was something wrong with the distribution, so they all came down in one big hunk, or, you know, stuff like this. But the point of the author was that there are some methods of proclaiming Christ crucified that are just wacky. We should just give those up altogether. And here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this beautiful method of proclaiming Christ crucified in wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read all 16 verses of the chapter. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided 
to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Please have a seat. This morning we are going to look at the real centrality of the cross, the wisdom of God revealed, and then toward the end of the chapter we will look at the Holy Spirit's role in revealing that wisdom of God. The centrality of the cross, the wisdom of God revealed, and the role of the Holy Spirit in revealing the wisdom of God. Let's look at the real centrality of the cross of Christ. You know, there's a lot of things that are not central, and Paul begins by talking about what's not central. When I came, I did not come (laughs) with this plan, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It's not lofty or eloquent speech that Paul was going to do that. He's not going to proclaim the centrality of the cross with some kind of superior wisdom showing off how smart he is. The form is not what is central. The content of the witness about God is. Notice, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's the issue. And it's not about lofty speech or eloquent superior wisdom. Well, what is central is found in verse 2 
Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that, when he says, I determined to know nothing, does not mean that he didn't possess any other knowledge. He knew all kinds of stuff. But it does mean that Paul determined, he resolved, he decided that he would proclaim the cross of Christ as his singular focus and passion. And this, by the way, was always the Apostle Paul's resolve. We read last week during our time at the Lord's table from Galatians 6, where he says, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's going to keep the cross central. Notice that it was a decision on his part. It's not that he only knew about Christ and him crucified. He decided to know nothing among you. In other words, he voluntarily, you know, Paul had probably some education in being able to communicate with lofty speech, having been trained in the school of the Pharisees. He probably had some capability in being able to demonstrate his wisdom. By the way, have you ever been around a person who just has to tell you everything they know? <laughs> They're not real attractive, are they? But Paul, Paul determined to know the cross of Christ, to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he decided not to do it with lofty speech or wisdom. What's the best way to keep Jesus and him crucified as central? Look at verse 3. It's not about our appearance or our delivery Paul says, when I was with you, I came with weakness and in fear and much trembling. You might think, well, of course, he's, he's got this message of the gospel and he's really feeling the fear of God about this. Well, that might be true, but that's not the testimony that the apostle Luke records in Acts chapter 18 when Paul went to Corinth, the fear he had. Now, you I don't typically think of Paul as a fearful guy. You know, I, I remember he goes into one town, he's beaten so badly that they think he's dead and they carry him out and leave him for dead. And then his followers come along and they kind of see, oh, he's alive. And then Paul gets up and walks back into the town that had beaten him up. Now, I think I'd walk away. So I don't get... I don't have the general impression that Paul is fearful, but listen to how Luke records when he came to Corinth that he was actually afraid, not of God. His fear and trembling were of people. Look what it says, uh, Acts 18, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It seems like he was afraid of how people would respond to him if Luke's description is what Paul is talking about here. So he's not coming, riding in on his white charger, thinking, okay, I got the world by the tail here. Come listen to my eloquent speech. No, he's, he's scared. 
this weakness that he's describing, it could be, and he did have several physical weaknesses, but it may also be emotional weakness. And notice verse 4, his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It's not personal appearance. It's not his presentation, but by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. The result is that the faith of the Corinthians would not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That is, when there was a response to the gospel message that everybody would know, well, it wasn't because the brilliant apostle Paul came by. They would know God was up to something. God did something here. There are too many people, listen to me well here, friends, There are too many people who think that they have been saved that are not truly saved because they never really responded to God's call. Instead, they were responding to some emotional or brilliant or persuasive presentation. The real centrality of the cross is not focused on those things at all. So let's think about some applications here. Imagine, if you will, uh, the Apostle Paul coming to East White Oak next week to preach. What would you expect? You might be disappointed. You would find a person who's not all that physically appealing lacking in rhetorical skill, not expressing the kind of wisdom that massages the message so that it sounds palatable to everybody, but rather someone who simply and boldly proclaims Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's your definition of a good presentation of the gospel? For that matter, what is your definition of good preaching? Is it that it's very polished? You know, the person seems prepared and knows how to put one word on another? Is it emotional? They're able to bring a a very effective emotional appeal to people that just draws them to thinking, oh, I need to respond to this message. Perhaps it's brilliant. They just go by point by point with such logic and care and brilliance and intelligence that you just think, wow, that's a real presentation of the gospel. That's good preaching. Or is it fiery? Somebody that really and emotionally makes this strong appeal in a fiery way that you just go, oh, wow, we've been in the presence of God. Or is it a simple proclaiming of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? I believe that that's what God likes in any preacher of the gospel and in any person, which should include every believer, right, who seeks to share the gospel with others. 
don't sweat it that you're afraid. Don't sweat it that you're not logically brilliant or that you don't, aren't able to make some emotional appeal that compels people to respond. Simply proclaim Jesus Christ crucified. Second application, we should pray that our preachers will preach in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. We should pray that our own proclamations of the gospel will come in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Have you ever had someone respond to you positively with the gospel and you kind of think to yourself, well, man, I must have done a good job at that then. Shame on us. Just as much as we should not feel like, oh, we failed if we have proclaimed Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the response is just Dudsville. Our job is simply to proclaim Christ crucified. Pray that your own proclamations of the gospel will come in demonstration of the Spirit's power and pray that God in this hour at this time in our world's moment of crisis, and the world is a mess right now, pray that God will raise up preachers who will so proclaim the gospel that the broader culture cannot, but they cannot escape the gospel's power. They just go, that's from God. The centrality of the cross. Now let's look at uh, the wisdom of God revealed in verses 6 through 10. And what's going to happen here is Paul's going to explain what the wisdom of God is not. And then he's going to explain what the wisdom of God is. And then he's going to explain another way that the wisdom of God is not. And then he's going to explain another way that the wisdom of God is. Okay, you follow me? What it's not, what it is, what it's not, what it is. So here we go. Verse 6, what it's not, part 1. Not everything under the label of wisdom is bad. Paul says among the mature, we do impart a wisdom. Paul says he's imparting a wisdom especially to those who are mature. But it's not a wisdom of the world or of its rulers who, by the way, are all doomed to pass away. And isn't that actually a comforting thought as we see the world raging and shaking its fist against God and his righteous laws the fact is the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. The wisdom of God is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. It is not a wisdom that's doomed to pass away, but rather is eternal. Verse 7, what it is, part 1. Instead, Paul and his team are imparting what he calls a secret and hidden wisdom. Now, this is not secret in the sense of a secret club that only a few people get to know about it. That's not what he's talking about. When he says secret and hidden, it means it's secret or hidden in the sense in that it hadn't been revealed up to this point in time, but now it's revealed. It was secret and hidden before, now it's revealed. God had decreed this wisdom before the ages. What it says, 
We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is that wisdom? That wisdom is that God would become a man, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die on the cross to pay for sin, that he would be buried, and that he would rise again from the dead, and his kingdom would come. Now, all of that was obscured until it happened. And then as you look back on it, you go, oh, I see it. It was a secret and hidden plan of the ages, before the ages, that's now been revealed in the Apostle Paul proclaims it. And notice, Paul believes in the predestined, decided beforehand sovereignty of God for our glory, for our glorification. Isn't that amazing thought? That's how, why Wesley says it in his hymn, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? For our glory. So we've seen what it is not, part one, verse six. What it is, part one, verse seven. Now what is not, part two, in verse eight. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The present power structures, both Roman and Jewish, did not understand this. If they had, they would not have dis- uh, um, crucified the Lord of glory. Notice, just as an aside, how our glory, verse 7, is tied to his glory in verse 8. It wasn't because the present power structures were lacking in intelligence that they didn't understand it. I mean, you don't take over the world and not have some intelligence, right? The Romans, they had some intelligence. It wasn't because they, they were somehow just intellectually I- ignorant people. No, they're, they're brilliant people to have established the kinds of things and culture that the Romans established around the, 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 the existing world as it was. It was. It's amazing. It wasn't that the Jewish leadership were lacking in intelligence in Paul's day, The fact is that most of the Jewish leadership not only had the entire Old Testament memorized, but they were walking concordances. That is, you could go up to them and say, hey, tell me about the word kingdom. How many times does it appear in the Bible? And they would be able to tell you, reference every spot in the Bible where that word appeared. Just pick a word and they'd be able to do it. So it's not that they were lacking in intelligence. It's rather that they were spiritually blind. In fact, according to verse 9, no one could understand it apart from God empowering people to do so. Here it says, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's how deep and dark the secret was. These things, verse 10, God's revealed to us now through his spirit. Now, when it says in verse 9, as it is written, we don't know with certainty where he's quoting here. It's not a text taken 
directly from the Old Testament, but I'm going to suggest that a really good candidate is Isaiah 64 and 65. Isaiah 64 begins, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's a, it's a plaintive cry for help. God, we need help. We're in a mess. And God did awesome things, Isaiah 64, verse 3, that we did not look for. But our sin was so great, Isaiah 64, 6, we've become unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, and we all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, drive us away. But the Lord is our Father. He's the potter. We are the clay, and so we submit to him. Verse 8 of Isaiah 64. Now, O Lord, you're our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. Verse 12 of Isaiah 64. Will you do nothing? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's the question. And then in Isaiah 65, there's this beautiful picture of salvation that culminates in verse 16. Though he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former things are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. God has done something wonderfully new. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This verse, verse 9 is quite often seen only in the sense of the future, isn't it? You know, we think about it, about heaven. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. That's not wrong. We're going to see that in a moment. But the strong sense of the text here, at least initially as we read it, should be about the past. That is that God's wisdom in salvation were not seen by the rulers of this age, either Roman or Jewish. The fact is, none of us saw it coming. Even though it was there in plain sight, we did not see it. The things of God are otherworldly, and we cannot guess what it is like. So that's how it is with the wisdom of salvation. No one saw it, no eye saw it, no ear heard it. No mind could conceive of what God had prepared for those who love him in the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, to come down here, live a perfect life, pay for sin, be crucified and buried, and rise on again on the third day. We couldn't imagine it. Now, you're not wrong if you use this verse to talk about the future, though, because the verse also points to the future, and in a very interesting way. If, in fact, Paul's using Isaiah 64 and 65 here, if you go to Isaiah chapter 65, you'll see that right after verse 16 that I just read you about this blessing, notice that the chapter shifts to a scene that's yet future even to us. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad, rejoice forever. I create Jerusalem to be a joy. And then it goes on to talk about things like the wolf and the lamb grazing together. The lion eats straw like an ox. It's all about the future too. So just as in the Old Testament times, 
There was a secret and hidden wisdom that God had designed in the age, before the ages to bring about the salvation of his people through Jesus Christ. So too, there is to us yet future, a kingdom coming that we can see described in the Bible, but we cannot see it clearly. So that's what it is not, part one, what it is, part one, what it is not, part two. Now look at verse 10. This is what it is, part two. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. This stuff can only be revealed by the Spirit of God to our hearts and minds. How God is known is not by natural means, especially when we're dispositioned not to see it. We won't see it. So, how do we take this wisdom of God revealed and apply it to our lives? First, the world's wisdom looks so attractive to us, doesn't it? And we can justify its use quite often within the church and in our own personal evangelism efforts by the results that we get. But question, what happens if we get tons of phony believers instead of a few true believers? That's something we ought to think about. Second application, we could never have figured out God's plan of salvation. That's why we ought not to spend so, too much time on uh, the eruditions of human wisdom and logic. We could never have figured it out. And, by the way, we will never be able to figure out his plan for the future with precision. And that should humble us too. Doesn't mean we don't look to the scriptures for guidance about the future or that we don't study Bible prophecy, but it does mean humility. You know, I've been a Christian long enough that I have some books in my uh, library, a little pamphlet called Will the World End in 1972? Uh, or 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988? And the follow-up, 89 Reasons Why He's Coming in 1989. I have one book called uh, uh, Is Gorbachev the Antichrist? We should be humbled by these things and be careful about trying to draw too perfect a connection between the pages of Scripture and the newspaper. I have found, in my experience, that many prophecy speakers will make these connections, and then when they don't come to pass, some, for some reason, completely forget that they ever made that prediction. They never acknowledge that they were wrong. A little humility, friend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive the things that the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. Third application, the wisdom of God is knowable, but only by those who have the Spirit of God. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit through the Spirit. It's the only way we know. So if that's true, let's look now, finally, at the Holy Spirit's role in revealing the wisdom of the cross. 
If the what of the wisdom of God is the cross and salvation, the how of that wisdom, how it is imparted to us, is the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, the Holy Spirit reveals the deep things of God. It says the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then Paul goes on to say, just as no one knows an individual's thoughts except the individual, only the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. Verse 12, we have received the Spirit who is from God. Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit from God, in order that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What are those things freely given us by God? Only eternal salvation. Only His plan for a people that would glorify Him forever and ever. God has given us these things and revealed them to us by His Spirit. Verse 13, this gifts of God in revealing these things to us are expressed in words, verbal communication. It's important to recognize that. It's not a feeling. It's not something that just kind of washes over you. Okay, I get it. I see it's a, some kind of a enlightenment like you'd get from some psychedelic drug. No, no, no. This is the impartation of truth that comes in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. The language is appropriate to the message rather than the language being appropriate to human wisdom. This should make a huge difference in our boldness. If we are worried about human wisdom, we will either change our words about the gospel or we will leave out words about the gospel. You know what I'm saying? There are lots of people that kind of get close to proclaiming the gospel, but they're afraid to offend people. And so they leave out certain parts. You know, we don't talk about hell too much anymore. We don't talk about Jesus being the only way. Those, are, those would offend. And the number of things that will offend is getting longer. Have you noticed that? You know, if you say something about gender or sexuality and what the Bible, well, that's just a deal breaker. So you got to kind of dance around just trying to come close and hopefully they'll kind of by osmosis get it by our beautiful logic and our careful presentation. They'll finally come into it and then after they finally come into it, maybe we can help them grow into knowing more rather than just bluntly telling people the gospel of Christ. And we gotta, we got to massage that somehow is how we think these days. Paul says, no. No, we use language appropriate to the message rather than the language that is appropriate to human wisdom. Many years ago now, when President Ford died, there was a pastor who spoke at his funeral. And in the funeral, he quoted John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Very good so far as it went. But he left out conveniently the last half of the verse. Why? Because he was fearful of such an exclusive message where 
the second half of the verse is, no one comes to the Father except through me. Our potential embarrassment on the Bible's teaching is going to know no bounds these days. If we possess the Spirit of God, we will not be embarrassed by the Bible. We will rather simply do what Charles Spurgeon said about the Bible. I don't defend the Bible. I treat it like a lion. I turn it loose. The gifts freely given to us are words from God that make the Word of God real and personal. So let's look lastly now at verses 14 and six to 16 at the differences between the person who has the Holy Spirit and the person who is without the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Paul uses these words, the natural person is the person without the Holy Spirit and the spiritual person is the person who has the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that natural people don't have some spiritual interest, but he's calling the person with the Spirit of God spiritual just as a way of distinguishing them, okay? So the person without the Holy Spirit, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They go, "I, I disagree with that. I don't go along with that. I don't like that. Why? Because they're folly to him. They just look ridiculous. How how dare you think this way? This is ridiculous. Folly. Notice, thirdly, the person without the Holy Spirit, he is not able to understand them. Capture that. He is not able to understand them. That means no amount of our finessing, no amount of our beautiful eloquence, no amount of our wisdom is going to truly save anybody. He is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. Such things can only be discerned by the Holy Spirit's operation in a person's life. What we're talking about here is what theologians call human inability. We are incapable of understanding spiritual things until the Spirit of God opens our eyes, opens our ears, awakens us to truth. Verse 15, but with the Spirit, the spiritual person, the person with the Spirit, It says, judges all things. I think the better translation is discerns because the same word is translated discerned there in verse 14. Discerns all things. From not able to discern to being able to discern all things. This means all things pertaining to salvation and the spiritual life. When it says he's able, the spiritual person discerns all things, he's not talking about the tax code, which God alone can understand. (laughs) He's talking about everything that pertains to salvation in the Christian life is the all things there. And that spiritual person is not subject to other human beings' discernment, especially those who do not have Jesus. That doesn't mean we're not accountable to those without Christ. People like the government and our laws, we're accountable to them. But it does mean that we are not accountable to those without Christ regarding our eternal salvation. 
the lost person cannot judge whether or not a person is saved. Can't do it. The reason is, verse 16, is that without the Spirit, the lost person cannot know the mind of God. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we, who by believing in Jesus have the Spirit of God, but we have, is this beautiful, the mind of Christ. That is good news. Here's some ways we want to apply this. Did you know that you cannot come to Christ on your own? You might think, I'll, I'll, I'll trust Jesus someday. You know, like, after I've sowed my wild oats, or I'll come to Jesus, you know, when I'm married, or after I have a family, or, you know, things like, no, you cannot come to Christ on your own. You are blind, you are deaf, you are dead. The Spirit of God brings life and wisdom. There's a song that we sing with some degree of frequency here at East White Oak where there's a verse that describes this well. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. The second thing that I recommend by way of application is that this week when you open the Bible to read it in your Bible reading, your personal devotions, that you take a moment before you read to praise God for the testimonium of the Holy Spirit. You know, what testimonium of the Holy Spirit, what's that? It's a term that theologians use for this witness of the Holy Spirit that belongs to every believer in Jesus. And the witness of the Holy Spirit is this, that when a believer opens the pages of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is saying to them, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So this week, as you open the Bible, before you do it, just say, Lord, I praise you that I have the Spirit of God. I have the mind of Christ not by anything I've done, but you gave me life. And now as I read the Bible, your Holy Spirit is, going, is just about to do some work in my life, helping me see what is true. Praise the Lord for the testimonium of the Holy Spirit. The last way of application is a question, how do I know if I have the mind of Christ? It's a good question, isn't it? How do I know if I have the mind of Christ? I can't do better than to go back to my childhood. I learned of Jesus at a very early age, professed faith in Him, 
But every once in a while, as does happen to uh, at least, uh, I've heard many stories of people who have had a similar experience, that you'll hear a preacher give some emotional appeal, make some call to you that helps you recognize, oh man, I'm, I'm still sinning, and you start to think, I wonder if I'm saved. And I would go to my dad with some degree of frequency. <laughs> I'd say, Dad, am I saved? And he would lead me through the same kind of process every, every time we talked. He'd say, well, Scott, do you know that apart from Christ, you're a sinner condemned by your sin to an eternal place of punishment? I'd say, yes, I do. We'd say, have you come to a place where you turn back from your sin and you're trusting what Jesus did at the cross to forgive you of that sin? I'd say, yes, I have. I'd say, do you believe he rose from the dead and he's making a place in heaven for you? I go, I do. And he would say, then you belong to Christ. can't tell you how great that joy was of that assurance to go through such good theology to be able to say what he was saying essentially is, Scott, you have the mind of Christ. Hallelujah. Lord, we're amazed not by anything we do, you open eyes. Not by anything we do, you unstop ears. Not by anything we do, you give life to dead people, spiritually dead people. Would you so impart life to people who are without it right now? Bring the truth of the gospel home as we seek to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, help us who are believers not to be so enamored of methods, but simply to proclaim Christ, not to be worried about lofty speech or wisdom or thinking that we have to know all the answers. Help us simply to proclaim Christ and to do so even in fear and much trembling, just as Paul went to Corinth. And that it would be through the weakness of our witness that people would see the power of God to save. It's not our presentation that saves. It is the power of Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.